and welcome to the Science and the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Tamara Johnson. I'd like you to take a moment and think about the food you have at home right now. How long has it been there? And honestly, how much of it do you think you're really going to eat? Maybe you plan to cook but end up working late and ordering in when you get home. This example comes to my mind easily because I happen to maybe do this all the time. But that's exactly the problem. All this food waste starts to add up in a major way. According to a recent report by Natural Resources Defense Council project scientist Dana Gunder, and I quote, getting food from the farm to our forks eats up 40% of the total U.S. energy budget, uses 50% of U.S. land, and swallows 80% of all the fresh water consumed in the United States. Yet 40% of food in the United States today goes uneaten. This not only means that Americans are throwing out the equivalent of $165 billion each year, but also that the uneaten food ends up rotting in landfills as the single largest component of U.S. municipal solid waste, where it accounts for a large portion of U.S. methane emissions. Reducing food losses by just 15% would be enough food to feed more than 25 million Americans every year, at a time when one in six Americans lack a secure supply of food to their tables." Unquote. Yeesh. So it's probably time to change the way we think about leftovers. Awesomely, today's guest is doing exactly that. My name is Josh Troyhoff. Uh, I work in the Foresight and Innovation team at Arup, which is an engineering and design consultancy here in New York. I am a designer by training, and I'm focused on issues around urban sustainability. To raise awareness about the issue of food waste and educate people about how we can all play a role in addressing this problem, Josh started the Salvage Supper Club, collaborating with a network of food scientists, waste management experts, farmers, and chefs. He hosts multi-course meals fit for the most discerning foodies in New York City. Here's the twist. The recipes use ingredients that would otherwise have been discarded, and the meals are served in a converted dumpster. In this podcast, we'll be hearing more about the problem of food waste and how some creativity can go a really long way. Josh, to start off, could you please tell us how you got interested in the subject of food waste? Well, I think growing up, I, I grew up in a household that had this thing called the Clean Plate Club, which is, I think, a lot of people, I thought it was maybe every, a Midwestern thing or just a My Family thing, but actually it was uh, originally from a government campaign, like after the World Wars. Um, but so I grew up in a family that was conscientious about it, and then in my, I guess, uh, mid-20s, uh, a friend of mine was founding a composting company and needed a designer to help them with their brand identity and to help them design this bicycle that they were going to pick up food waste on. And so I got involved in that project and started learning a bit more about uh, the scale of waste in the food supply chain and sort of over time and learning and having more conversations started realizing that it was a really big issue that there are all these hungry people and there's also all this decomposing food that's not very good for our environment and get more and more involved. Why is there such a big disconnect between supply and demand when it comes to food? It depends on where in the supply chain the waste is coming from because it happens all over so there's waste at the farm level, there's waste in the distribution level, there's waste at the consumer level, and all of those things have different drivers behind why they happen. So some of them are interrelated. For instance, at the farm level, when you have uh, some of the food doesn't come all the way to market because they don't think it looks right or they think that it's not something that the consumer will buy, and so they end up you know, not putting it on a truck and paying people to harvest it and then 
bring it here because they don't think a consumer will buy it at a grocery store. So there's waste that happens there. There's waste in the distribution and supply chain in the sense that if it either spoils or gets bruised when it's on a truck or if it doesn't move efficiently or isn't refrigerated correctly or what have you, we lose food uh, in that process. At the consumer level, we have, again, the stuff like aesthetics. It gets to the store and it looks weird. It doesn't look the way I expected. And since my expectations uh, drive my behaviors, typically I say, I don't want to buy that weird apple with a little spot on it or I don't want to buy that carrot. Uh, that has two legs, which is a weird thing. And so uh, part of it is consumer expectations. And then there's also, once it gets into the home, there's sort of like poor planning or just life happens. You know, people buy food and then they don't budget their time correctly and the food starts going and they think either it's going to be unsafe now and so I can't eat it, which is not true typically, um, or it's not going to taste right and so I don't want it and so really I throw it away or in some cases compost it. Uh, I think sell-by dates and best-by dates and sort of like the labeling around that stuff is another sort of cause, one of the places where people think a best-by date is some regulated by the government date that says after this date you shouldn't be eating this and it's not. And so that's, a, I think, kind of a pretty big issue. Um, Dana Gunders at the NRDC and uh, Emily Lee at Harvard have just recently published a report about it, which is sell-by dates are typically manufacturer's best guess of when the aesthetics of the food will change. So like if your milk if it is perceptible that you will smell a difference or taste a difference, that's the date that they say that you should toss it. Which doesn't mean that it's going to make you sick at that date or that it's not safe to eat at that date. It's in the manufacturer's best interest to have you toss it out as soon as it's not a prime so that they can sell you another one. And so I, I think most consumers don't know that and are throwing things away before their time. When you mentioned the perceptible difference in aesthetic qualities such as smell, I think intuitively most people would associate a change in smell as a sign that it's off and at least, you know, if it's not definitely going to make you sick, it's probably better to avoid it. Mm. Is there actually a hard line and is it knowable from when something's just kind of not aesthetically ideal and you could maybe change the presentation and its preparation versus when it actually could make you sick? It mm. seems like the health concerns must be pretty weighty in trying to change people's behavior around this topic. Yeah, health concerns, uh, in my research, health concerns are sort of one of the biggest ones. Um, and it, it stems from uncertainty, and there isn't actually a hard line in a lot of these things. Mold is a good example. There are some molds that you can cut off and eat the rest of the thing, and there are other molds that once they're visible, like they've taken over the entire piece of food and you shouldn't eat it. Um, milk actually is, is interesting. When milk doesn't smell good, um, it will most likely not taste good, but actually the bacteria that have colonized that milk are typically not ones that would make you sick. It just might make you gag because it doesn't because of the aesthetics. And so that's I think one of the misperceptions in the consumer mindset is uh, we conflate something being unsafe with something being spoiled. And so in the in the research that I've been doing with food scientists, the bacteria that cause foodborne illness, like E. coli, salmonella, listeria, etc., uh, are just a fundamentally different set of bacteria than the bacteria that cause a food's aesthetics to change. Mm -hmm. So when your banana sits out on your counter for a long time and turns black on the outside, that is, a, that is microorganisms acting on the banana, and the aesthetics of that banana have changed, but your likelihood of getting sick from eating that banana has, if it was handled correctly, is, is no more likely to make you sick. It's just a, a change in aesthetics. 
Um, whereas uh, if food is inappropriately handled, whether it's cross-contamination, somebody has meat and vegetables on the same cutting board, or it comes in contact with like, you know, feces from an animal during the supply chain or whatever it is, you're likely to get sick because of those foodborne illness bacterium. And you could eat something straight off the shelf and get that if it wasn't handled correctly. And we see that in the last couple of years with all these outbreaks of spinach that was not handled correctly and then people are getting you know, E. coli in their bags of spinach at the grocery store or, or what have you. And so that is sort of food handling and preparation is very important. And you know, the age of the food and how long it has gone is sort of we think is a food safety issue, but it's not always a food safety issue. So I don't think I'm going too far out on a limb if I guess that the question of health and safety is probably the most important one to basically all of you listening. I know that was where my mind went first. So joining us to make some clarifications and corroborations is Amy Boudreau, Associate Director of the Sackler Institute of Nutrition Science at the New York Academy of Sciences. Amy, first of all, is all this true? Yes, it is true. Microorganisms are classified into three groups. There's beneficial microorganisms that um, are used in the process of making new food, such as cheese. There are spoilage microorganisms that cause food to spoil, but they're not harmful to humans, such as souring milk. And then there's pathogenic microorganisms that are the disease-causing microorganisms. These are the ones that can cause food poisoning. So as consumers, are there any basic rules we can all follow to make sure we're minimizing health risks from food and also trying to do our part to reduce food waste? Foods contaminated with pathogenic or microorganisms, and that's the one that causes food poisoning, usually don't look bad, taste bad, or smell bad. It's actually impossible to determine if they're contaminated unless there's a microbiological testing done. To avoid potential problems in foods, it's very important to control or eliminate these microorganisms in food products. Strategies to reduce these microorganisms in food products would be to be cooking it at the right temperature, to put perishable items in the refrigerator at below 40 degrees Fahrenheit or in the freezer, and for cooking, temperature should range from 145 to 165 degrees depending on the type of uh, protein or meat that you're cooking. Great, thank you. Now back to Josh. Okay, now let's talk about the Salvage Supper Club and how you're hoping it can help make a dent. So the Salvage Supper Club is uh, a, actually a extension of my thesis work at the School of Visual Arts. So I just got my master's in design for social innovation. And I was focused on issues around waste. And originally I started the project trying to excite people about composting. And actually sort of through my research process, I realized composting is great, but if we can actually get people to use more of the edible food and find value and be excited about it, that that's a great sort of uh, transition and, and change mindset and behavior, which is really what we're after. So, so the Salvage Supper Club was basically was just one approach that I took, which is basically focusing on the food instead of on the waste. And so I collaborate with chefs and we so far have done these six course communal table dining experiences where every course features ingredients that would commonly be wasted in a household kitchen, a restaurant kitchen, or a grocery store. So it could be a part of a fruit or vegetable that you don't think you can use, like the peel of an organic carrot or the stalk of a broccoli, and then doing recipes that actually utilize that so that the guests can see like, whoa, I can, I can eat a broccoli stalk, I've never done that. Um, or it could be using a food that's aesthetically not what you would expect, so working with farmers from the farmer's market to get the stuff that just didn't look right, that they couldn't sell at the market, and then 
taking before and after photos of showing people this is what it looks like before you never would have bought it and this is some amazing food that you ate with it um, and so e each course sort of has this element of it was in some way something that people wouldn't have used and then they get to hear the story they eat the dish it's wonderful um, and then at the end all of the people get uh, rest the recipes for all of the all of the courses that they ate so that they can sort of do it on their own um, and so that's sort of the Salvage Supper Club and then the most recent ones which is the thing that a lot of people have been gravitating towards I actually designed and built this uh, dining room inside of a demolition dumpster that uh, was a 16-foot communal table with benches and a wood floor and nice lights and stuff and that was sort of part of that was just to get the conversation out into the open like do it on the street and get media to cover it and get people to start talking about food waste so that we could actually get people to start thinking about how they can use more food but also I think it was a nice metaphor and that like a dumpster you see on the outside it's sort of like it's a dumpster you know it's like a gross thing on the outside but then in the inside this thing is now this like beautiful place that people actually want to go and eat a meal um, and I think that that's sort of similar to a lot of the food in our lives is it looks weird on the outside, it looks like it's not something that I should use and so I throw it away, but actually there's all this promise inside of a lot of our food that we could be using. That's really cool. How did you bring all the elements of this idea together? It's a good question. I think there's this an element of curiosity and like interest in working across disciplines and actually having impact on the world with the work that you do. But uh, in terms of the, the work that I had done through DSI, is what we call it, Design for Social Innovation at SGA, um, the, the early stages were sort of about like coming to a really concrete place where you understand a problem well enough, you've talked to a bunch of stakeholders, you've gone out and done research with real people, you've maybe done some small prototypes to sort of understand what people, how they react to things and how they're feeling about and what sort of like some of the deeper emotions and reasons behind their attitudes and behaviors are. And then sort of like getting to a place where you sort of feel like you have that knowledge and building partnerships with people who are interested in the same thing and working together as I like working in collaborative ways. And so in this project I had advisors and partners who were farmers and work in the food system and people who are designers and sort of can help with the research and people who are really focused on waste and waste management and composting and so bringing together all those people to sort of make sure that you have a diversity of perspectives is I think really important and then being willing to try something was that's actually the the biggest one it's like the first dinner that I did the first salvage supper club I did was in my studio I'm not a chef, but I, I, and I had nothing to go on, so I just had a friend who knows how to cook. And we, we did a dinner and charged five bucks for like a five-course dinner, which is very cheap. Um, and it was a, a ton of work, and people were like, you should charge way more money for this. Like five dollars is definitely not enough. Um, and it was totally not sustainable in terms of like, it was not financially sustainable to do that. But it was doing something and inviting people that I didn't know to come try it and see did they respond? Did it do something for them? And then following up and, and learning from what people said, what they took away, what the experience was like. And, you know, if I hadn't done that first one and been willing to just take a chance, you never know. Where do you get the surplus ingredients for the recipes? So in the first couple of meals that we did, we had restaurant partner, a couple of restaurant partners. We had some broccoli stalks. There was a restaurant that used the florets but didn't use the stalks, and so we had broccoli stalks. Um, and then uh, it's been mostly we have some food co-ops in New York City that 
have stuff, you know, they know that their members aren't going to buy it once it's gotten to a certain point and it's been sitting on the shelf X, X days or weeks. Uh, farmers at the farmer's market, uh, some of that stuff they give to City Harvest and that's great. And then some of the stuff either City Harvest doesn't take or we say, you know, we're doing this thing about educating people instead of just giving the food to people, which is also great. We're going to use this both to get it eaten and to educate people about how they can use it, which is great for the farmers because it extends. If people start seeing that they can eat that weird-looking carrot, then it actually extends the stuff that's marketable for the farmer. And so there's been some of that. A few restaurants in the most recent dinners, um, like donating lemon peels and things, you know, uh, like juice bars, stuff like that. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a mix. Actually, in some of the early ones, we had... Uh, people from my studio, like grad students at my school, I send out a, bl a blast email saying, we're doing this dinner. If you have anything in your cabinets or fridge that you think might still be edible, but you're definitely not going to eat it, bring all of it in and any of the stuff we can use for this dinner we'll use. And if we can't use it, we'll compost it. And that actually got us a decent amount of food for one of the meals, which was kind of interesting. Can you share any tips for anyone listening for preparing older ingredients in an appetizing way? I don't have any hard and fast rules. I think sort of my, my umbrella term, what I've been calling this sort of the big idea is eat everything, which is basically about food exists on this spectrum. If we, if, we, if we rule out the unsafe food, which is hard to know what's unsafe because you can't see salmonella, um, it exists on the spectrum from like the brand new, perfect looking shiny red apple that the grocery stores tell you is what you should be buying to something that is barely recognizable as food and most of us eat a really narrow slice of that spectrum towards the front end close to the perfect apple um, but in reality like a very large percentage of that spectrum of food is edible and can be used to make like great food and so the first step is just recognizing that like instead of saying it doesn't look right it doesn't seem right I should throw it away saying to yourself it doesn't look right I wonder if there's something that I can do I think one thing is and that maybe younger generations may be better at this is like we live in a like a Googleable culture. It's like it's pretty easy to get online and just like type in, hey, my spinach is a little brown, what can I do with it? And you'll probably find forums of people saying, like, hey, you can use it to make a smoothie, or you can still saute it and put it into a stir fry, or hey, this is actually probably not safe. Like this food, once it gets to that point, you shouldn't eat. And so um, actually just being willing to take a minute or two, like it doesn't take that long to go online, especially if you have a smartphone. Um, so like being willing to do that, I think, is, is maybe a good first step instead of going to our default, which many people's default is the outside edge of my spinach is brown, I'm going to throw it away. Um, and then beyond that, you know, if it's texture stuff, uh, jam, texture or even just visual stuff, jams, compotes, um, spreads like making hummus and things like that. Soups are a good one. A lot of people uh, will use sort of the produce at the end of the week when it's starting to get a little bit wilty or whatever in a soup. Uh, soup stock is, a, is an easy one. You can actually use a lot of your compost scraps if you're the type of person who saves your scraps to go composting. Before you compost them, you can roast them and put them in a pot of water for a while and make great vegetable stock. Uh, so if it's, if it's covered in mold and things like that, like exercise judgment if you don't want to eat it like throw it away nobody's gonna there's no policeman's gonna come around and arrest you for that but but there are tons of things that you could be using or trying and it's it gets back to what we were just talking about about the fail and try again it's like if you cook something above 140 degrees or 
or freeze something or refrigerate it below 40 degrees, your chances of bacterial uh, like contamination are pretty low. So if it's cooked, you try it. It's probably not going to make you sick. And if you hate it, what's the worst thing that happens is you wasted a little bit of time and you compost it. Um, the best thing that happens is you find something awesome and now you have like a new recipe that you can use to eat, you can use more of the food that you bought and you can impress your friends. It's like, um, there's a, a chef, a pretty famous chef here in New York, a guy David Chang who runs Momofuku. Um, he's all about rotten food. Like actually a, a huge part of his menu is rotten food and he is on record saying, the only thing I can think of uh, that I would rather eat fresh is orange juice. It's like fish sauce and this really flavorful stuff. Fermenting things is te technically rotten. That's like that's enabling bacteria to change it, and it really can amplify the flavor of things. So um, it's just recognizing that and doing it in a safe way, and, and realizing like sometimes it's going to taste weird, and you might not want it, and that's okay. Uh, I think is a, is a is a big one. So and uh, juicing is another one. Juicing and making you know applesauce and sauces and stuff is pretty easy it doesn't require a lot of like complex technique or machines and you can do it in your own home like making a hummus needs a food processor or making applesauce needs a pot <laughs> you know it's like cut a bruised apple put it in a pot leave it cook it down you have applesauce it's like stuff to argue with it's not rocket science how can listeners participate or get the recipes from Salvage Supper Club dinners? Do you have a cookbook? Stay tuned. Um, it's actually not a cookbook. Right now we just email the, the participants who came a set of the recipes. But yeah, Salvage Kitchen Cookbook is sort of one of the things on our list of many things to continue working on. And uh, building a fully f fleshed out website is also another one. Neither Right now, right now it's word of mouth and email, um, mostly because... I work a full-time job and just finished grad school. Cool. And if people wanted to know more about the supper clubs, like how to participate in a yeah. meal or donate food or something, yeah. how would they get involved either as a as a donor or a diner? There are a couple of things. Uh, salvage supper club at gmail.com is the email. So just send a message, salvage supper club, all one word, at gmail.com if you want to get on the invite list for the next dinner or if you want to volunteer, etc. Um, and then the other thing is, I don't have to run all these dinners, you know, it's like, I would be perfectly happy if somebody said, oh, that's a cool idea, I want to do that in my own house. And on a Sunday night, I want to invite five people to bring over whatever's left in their fridge and we'll make a meal together. That's a Salvage Supper Club. I want to get more people recognizing that in a safe way they can still eat a lot of this food. If you want tips on how to do it yourself, send me an email and I'll try to put you in touch with a chef or a food scientist or find them on your own and yeah, give it a whirl. Awesome. To wrap up, I'd like to ask your advice about coming up and following through with social impact ideas like yours. What would you say to anyone listening who might be inspired and would like to bring their skills and interests to the table, as it were? Yeah, that's a, I mean, that, that's important stuff. Uh, I think people who make things have it, in my mind, have a responsibility. Uh, because the work that you do ends up touching the lives of other people. So designers and engineers and app developers and stuff. And, and it's becoming more common that there is a, a level of consciousness in that. But it's, it hasn't always been that way. And there still are plenty of people who don't think so much about the consequences of the things that they build and put into the world. And so be conscious of the fact that the things that you do, everything that you do, 
that you put out into the world has an impact and recognize that you have like a, a gift and an opportunity to sort of like to utilize that for good and find the right people who complement the skills that you have and help you accentuate and elevate the stuff that you're doing. Um, I guess like in the case of the work that I've done, if I was just a solitary designer working on my own making apps, it would probably not be nearly as useful as a guy who can do that but also works with community composting site and works with the Department of Sanitation and like takes on board the, the feedback and the input and the perspectives of those people and so um, developing empathy an understanding that you can't do it yourself and that you want to work with other people and that sort of these big complex social issues do require multidisciplinary perspectives and teams working on them and and seek that out and and I would also say working in, in in multidisciplinary teams is tough people speak different disciplinary languages they you talk past each other sometimes finding the common ground and understanding how to move forward together is a real skill and so you have to be comfortable and aware of the fact that tension will exist in any social context when you're working with other people tension can arise make sure that it's productive tension and understand that like we're trying to work together on something and let's figure out a way to understand each other's perspectives so that we can work together to build something great. That's it for this episode. Science in the City would like to thank the Brotherton Foundation for its generous support of this podcast. For more, visit scienceinthecity.org. You can also follow us on social media. We're Sci and the City on Twitter and Science and the City on Facebook. Thanks for listening. <laughs>